Now, as I considered the opportunity to preach again today, I was unsure whether to climb on the Christmas bandwagon or to continue with our study of James. After some prayer and consideration, I decided to do both. So, our topic today is what does James have to say to us at Christmas? Well, Christmas is always a special time, not just for Christians, but for everybody else, in that we celebrate the birth of Christ And whilst that is miraculous in the true sense of the word, it is not an end in itself. For that, we have to look forward. Now, I'm by no means saying that we shouldn't celebrate Christmas or recognize the birth of Christ, because these are good things to do. But we can't allow them to define our relationship with God. That relationship is ongoing and requires constant attention. We can't ever sit back and say that because we've done Christmas, that we've come even close to fulfilling what God needs from us. We must look forward to the defining act of Christ's life, which was, of course, his death on the cross and, most importantly, his resurrection from the dead. Through this, he fulfilled God's requirement for justice, for punishment of our sins. And through this amazing act of mercy, all those who call Christ their Savior can look forward to eternal life in heaven with God our Father. We will not go to heaven if we have lived a good life. Because our sin condemns us and we cannot escape it on our own, we can only find reconciliation with God through Jesus. Let's be very specific here. This is not some philosophical discussion about other people. This is real for you and for me, and that's right here and right now today. Since this is the case, we have a continuing need to consider our response. Our response must be the same as the reality of Christ's sacrifice. If his sacrifice is true and personal today, then our response to him must also be true and personal today. Of course, this brings about the question, what should the quality and type of that response be? Well, this is something that James has a great deal to tell us about. So let's turn to James chapter 1 if you have your Bibles. If you haven't, then we have it up here. And I'll read from verse 1 just to get us up to speed. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance be perfect, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and he will be given it. But he should ask in faith, not doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed about by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, since he is a man of two minds, unstable in all his ways. In our previous studies, that's as far as we've got. So today we start with verse 9, and I'll carry on. The brother in lowly circumstances should take pride in his high standing, and the rich one in his lowliness, for he will pass away like the flower of the field. For the sun comes up with its scorching heat and dries up the grass, its flower droops, and the beauty of its appearance vanishes. So will the rich person fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now get this in context. James was writing to a body of Christians who were mostly economically poor and suffering from the after-effects of dispersion and persecution. 
And we know this from his use of the Greek word tepanos, which is used to describe folk in lower circumstances. We also know from historical records that there was a famine that struck that area at about this time. To look at the situation then with worldly eyes, what would these people possibly have that would give them high standing of any kind? We're given a strong clue by the use of the Greek word hypsos for the term high standing, or sometimes it's rendered exaltation. This word is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the place to which Christ ascends and from which the Holy Spirit descends. So the valuable thing James must be writing about is the place in heaven that awaits every follower of Christ. Let's remember that this is more than just a physical place, but it's an eternal home for our spirits after we die. James is reminding us in the most practical terms where our eyes should be fixed when the hardest of times come along, and he is showing us just how valuable is the salvation that Christ has brought for us. Now, where do we most commonly look when confronted with trouble and strife? I speak for myself, certainly, when I often say that it is inward, not upward to God. And according to some who study the human mind, this is to be considered normal. Um, who amongst you have heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? If you've been to a management seminar, you've probably heard of him. Yep. Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a theory in psychology, and it was proposed by a man called Abraham Maslow in his paper written in 1943, in the middle of the war, a theory of human motivation. And this theory is often depicted as a pyramid consisting of five levels. The four lower levels are grouped together as deficiency needs associated with physiological needs, while the top level is termed growth needs associated with psychological needs. While deficiency needs must be met, growth needs are the need for personal growth. Who understood that? Oh, you're all so slow. What this jargon is trying to tell us is that the higher needs in this pyramid only come into focus once all the needs that are lower down are mainly or entirely satisfied. However, once you move past a level, you won't worry about those things. However, if those things come back to haunt you, well, you're going to go back to look at them again. So, a simple example, I'm very hungry, I'm thinking of nothing else, I'm looking for food, great, I found some food, now I'm going to go and look for somewhere to get out of the rain. Okay, now I've got out of the rain, I've got some food, well, maybe I can have a look around and find some friends. So everything's great, I've got some friends, but oops, the food runs out, so I'm going to go back to focusing on food and I'm going to ignore my house and my friends. That's really what Maslow's trying to tell us. And Maslow's little pyramid still has a fair number of supporters today. And while it does have weaknesses, we can see from our own experience that it basically does make some sense. Does it make sense, though, in context with what we're studying today? I think so. James is encouraging folk whose circumstances place them at the bottom of the pyramid to think and behave like people right at the top. In worldly thinking, this is a huge and impossible leap. I mean, you only just have a roof over your head and you haven't had a good meal for weeks, but you're thinking about God. Indeed, you are rejoicing because you sense the enormity of what is promised to you in Christ. The world is going to think that you are nuts. And this is what Paul is speaking about in 1 Corinthians 1. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with the wisdom of human eloquence, so that the Christ of Christ might not be emptied of its meaning. 
The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the learning of the learned I will set aside. But this so-called foolishness conceals a pearl of very great price. By contrasting lowly circumstances that all of us clearly understand with concepts like pride and high standing and showing us where our focus should be, James is exposing the enormous value of the gift of eternal life. You know, it's so easy to read these words and it's, you could just gloss over it. You know, you can just read it through in a few seconds. But really, when you look at it hard, it is very, very fundamental to our motivation to press on when things seem hard. And I urge you to hold this idea in your heart and remember it always. In 1 Peter 1, we see this type of encouragement again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in His great mercy gave us a new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Now just listen to what he's saying about our inheritance. That is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by the power of God are safeguarded through faith to a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the final time. In this you rejoice, although now for a little while you may have to suffer through various trials. Now seeing we're on the theme of gifts, let's have a little talk about Christmas. Now at Christmas we all like to give and most especially to receive gifts. Yes, I like those gifts. We do it to show our love and appreciation for the recipient and we feel valued because we receive gifts. Christmas is a great time for families to draw closer to one another. And you know, isn't that just what God did for us with the birth of Jesus? He gave us the finest and most valuable gift of all because of his great love for us and by doing so he drew us into his family. If we recognize this, shouldn't we feel valued by God? And if we are valued by somebody as important as God, we should at least, at very least, feel more comfortable when life becomes hard. Moreover, this is a gift that we can pass on. Christmas is a time when we ought to be reminding people around us what we celebrate and why. I urge you to pray that God would give you an opportunity to talk to the people around you about Jesus and what he means to you at this time. It will be the very best gift that you could ever give to anyone. In this regard, I'd like to read you a special birthday invitation that I received just the other day, and I'd like to apologize to any Faith Academy parents who may have heard it before. You are all coordinately invited to a birthday celebration. The guest of honor is Jesus Christ. Date? Every day, but traditionally December the 25th. But he's always around, so the date is flexible. Time? Whenever you're ready. But please don't be late because you'll miss out on all the fun. Place in your heart? He'll meet you there and you'll hear him knock. Attire? Come just as you are. Grubbies are okay. He'll be washing our clothes anyway. He said something about new white robes and crowns for everyone who stays until the last. Tickets? Admission is free, but you do need to accept the ticket. He's already paid. For everyone, he says he wouldn't be able to afford it anyway. It cost him everything that he had. Refreshments, 
New wine, bread, and a far-out drink he calls living water, followed by a supper that promises to be out of this world. Gift suggestions. Your life. He's one of those people who already has everything else, but he's very generous in return. Just wait until you see what he has for you. Entertainment, joy, peace, truth, light, love, real happiness, communion with God, forgiveness, miracles, healing, power, eternity and paradise, contentment and much more. And it's all G-rated, so bring your family and friends. RSVP. It's very important. He must know ahead so that he can reserve a spot for you at the table. Also, he's keeping a list of his friends for future reference. He calls it the Lamb's Book of Life. The party's being given by his kids, and that's us. And I hope to see you there. For those of you I will see at the party, share this with someone today. To go back to Maslow, it's very interesting that the top section of the pyramid is labelled self-actualization, and moreover that the shape of the pyramid suggests a focus or concentration towards self. Isn't this just what we tend to see in society today? Isn't this just now the modern Christmas message? Never mind that Christ was born. Ignore the fantastic fact that God became man for the specific purpose of making atonement for our sins so that man and God, creation and creator, could be reconciled. No, no, we're told that we will become happier as we focus on ourselves, as we accumulate lots of new and glossy things. And just to help us along, there are those good, no interest, 47 million years to pay adverts. And they suck us into this way of living. No, says James. What you are experiencing here is not important. Look forward to your reward in heaven and recognize that it is a free gift of indescribable value and imperishable nature. Recognition, though, is not enough. There must be an outward manifestation of what we can see inwardly, a change of attitude and behavior. We can't just say, okay, that's nice, thanks God, and then carry on regardless. When I looked at some other translations of verse 9, they use words like boast, glory, and rejoice, instead of that more sober, take pride. And I think this emphasizes what our external response to Jesus' gift should be. People around us should be able to see that we are different, and this is how we are salt and life to the earth. It has to be genuine, though. I'm sure all of us have met those Christians who have that kind of false cheerfulness, and really it just isn't a very good look. Although, as I mentioned earlier, Maslow does have some credibility, I must take issue with his placement of morality at the apex of the pyramid because it suggests that we become more moral as we advance. This is contrary to what we know to be generally true, as we often observe a lack of morality amongst many of the more privileged members of society. Unfortunately, true morality just cannot come from within. The very design of our bodies is against us. We can't stick a finger into a hot bath and announce that it is exactly 55.2 degrees Celsius because it's the only thing we can say is that it was hotter or colder than the last thing we touched. Our senses are all relative. And who's to say what is hot and cold? Our senses are very easily fooled. I have an example. Now, imagine you took these three glasses, you got one of these and you filled it with icy cold water, 
okay? You've got the other and you fill it with some hot water. Now, not too hot because to burn yourself, you're going to have to stick your finger in here. And the third one in the middle, you're going to put some water that's room temperature, okay? Now, get your finger, stick it in there, and keep it in there for a minute, okay? Then take both fingers and stick them into the middle glass. Now, one finger is going to say, oh, this is hot. The other finger is going to say, oh, this is cold. But the fact of the matter is, that water is the same temperature. We can't even tell, really, what's hot and cold. And it's exactly the same thing with morality, unfortunately. What we thought was an easy thing to do turns out to be a lot harder than we expected. In the same way, we cannot trust our senses because they are relative. We cannot trust ourselves to manage our own morality. All of us have observed how morality evolves. And for example, it's not that long ago that nudity in the public media was absolutely unthinkable. But today, it's almost impossible to escape it. This gradual change is how Satan has successfully dragged mankind away from God's standards. We are fooling ourselves in a very profound way if we think that we will not fall prey to the same gradual erosion of our values if we try to go it alone. So, we have a problem. Where then can we find a source of absolutes? Well, only in God and His Word. God's nature and behavior is always perfectly consistent, and we have an enduring and specific record which informs us of what His standards and expectations are. And this is in the Bible. God has drawn some absolutely unchanging lines in the sand that are absolute truths for us. We cannot stray if we rely on God for our standards and guidance. In Isaiah 40, we read, The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We will do well to rely on God and His word for our morality. Success and comfort can cause us to relax our guard, to stop trying, and believe that all is well with the world. And the same dynamic applies to our relationship with God. When times are tough, we call on Him. Oh, please God, help me! But when they are good, we often forget. It seems to me that this is fundamentally dishonest. And yet I find myself in the same pattern. Despite this as a measure of God's nature, He still encourages us to call on Him when we're in trouble, as we see in these scriptures. 2 Samuel 22. In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. From His temple He heard my voice and my cry reached His ears. Psalm 99.6 Moses and Aaron were among His priests, Samuel among those who called on God's name. They called on the Lord who answered them. And in Acts 2.21, And it shall be that everyone shall be saved who calls upon the name of the Lord. It's a great blessing that we can re rely on God our Father when times are hard and that He will listen and respond according to His great wisdom. Well, as usual, I seem to have digressed a little bit, so let's get back on track by reviewing what we have learned so far. Firstly, as we consider Christmas, we recognize that it's only the beginning of the most important piece of work that God has undertaken for mankind, our salvation through the death of Jesus. Secondly, 
This specifically involves us, and we cannot ignore it. We must either embrace or reject God's offered hand. If the first, then we must also take up the terms in which it is offered. If it is the second, then we are facing condemnation and punishment by the creator of the universe. And lastly, although the world says we should look inwards when we're in hard places, I just have to go and find myself. The great value of Christ's sacrifice should draw our eyes upward and our attitude from pessimism to praise. I'll read our passage again. The brother in lowly circumstances should take pride in his high standing and the rich one in his lowliness, for he will pass away like the flower of the field. For the sun comes up with its scorching heat and dries up the grass. Its flower droops and the beauty of its appearance vanishes. So will the rich person fade away in the midst of his pursuits. We have by now dealt thoroughly with the poor man, but what of the man who lives well? What is his position? James shows us that the rich man must also look outside his material circumstances to see what is really important in his life. As I mentioned earlier, comfort has a way of causing us to forget God and what is really important in quite a profound way. God, who knows us too well, has placed many warnings to us in Scripture about the traps hidden in worldly wealth. Excuse me. <coughs> Further, whilst the poor are often portrayed as humble saints, trusting in God for their deliverance. Sorry, Daniel, did I give you a fright? You've got to be faster on the slider there. Whilst the poor are often portrayed as humble saints, trusting in God for their deliverance, the wealthy are shown as godless people who oppress the poor and trust in their wealth to save them. God promises to uplift the former and cast down the latter. And we see an example of this in Luke 1. He has thrown down the rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the lowly. The hungry he has filled with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. As I was looking through the material to prepare this sermon, it became obvious there was some disagreement amongst various commentators as to whether James was speaking about the rich man as a believer or not. It seems most likely to me that he is speaking of a believer in order to caution Christians at both ends of the social spectrum. After all, he's just spent some time dealing with the poor Christian. So James is saying that a wealthy Christian ought to rejoice in trials because they show him the weakness of believing in material things and the importance of holding on to God. Wealth is extremely seductive. Many of us aspire to it and dream of it. But what are we actually aspiring to? In 1 Timothy 6, Paul tells us, For we brought nothing into the world, just as we shall not be able to take anything out of it. If we have food and clothing, we shall be content with that. Those who want to be rich are falling into temptation and into a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils, and some people in their desire for it have strayed from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. In Matthew 6, we are cautioned, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and decay destroy, and thieves break in and steal. But store up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor decay destroys nor thieves break in and steal. For where your heart is, there also, sorry, where your treasure is, there also will your heart be.
we may be aspiring towards and laboring for something that will not last. Worse, it may distract us from correctly worshipping our Heavenly Father. It seems that if God blesses us with wealth, and He does do that for some folk, uh, we need to be extraordinarily careful about how it affects our relationship with Him. One of my favorite daydreams, and I suspect that um, it may be others, is what I would do if I won lotto. Yes. Now, let's just stay with the daydream here. Let's not worry about the morality. I can go on for quite a lot of, of detail and, and for some time about, you know, what could I do to the house? What kind of cars could I have? Mm, well, I need a boat for the river and I need a boat for Taupo and I need a big boat for the sea and maybe a tinny and Oh, there's that big box of snap-on tools and, you know, it just goes on and on. And then I realize, to my horror, that I haven't spent one moment thinking about what I could do with that money for other people. It's all about me. So here I am. I've been a Christian for many years. I think I know what is right and wrong. But show me some money and who do I think about? <laughs> me. This is a warning to me about the weaknesses that I have in my character when it comes to money. And as I suspect that I'm not alone in my dreams, I suspect that I'm not alone in my weakness. I pray that God would spare me from that. No, give me a million bucks, God. <clears throat> right. James goes on to point out quite vehemently that the nice appearance of wealth is transitory, for it will pass away, just like the flower of the field. And it's a very vivid picture that he paints. So it's very easy for us to understand what happens to, to our wealth if we, if we see it the wrong way. And I'm not going to waste any time trying to explain it any further. But I do have some important questions. What is the important stuff that we must take from these three verses in James? What may provoke us to live our lives a bit differently? Well... To me, it is that irrespective of our circumstances, the gift of eternal life in heaven through Jesus has a huge value that cannot be quantified in any human terms. And we ought to treat it as such. In good times and bad, we should look upward to God and not inward to self. We must search our hearts to see where our trust lies, in God or in wealth, and we should always guard our hearts from the seductive trap of materialism. Just what is the size of the gift that we have been given? Well, as I was trying to uh, think this one through, I opened up an email that we'd received yesterday from a friend in Canada, and it contained this very nice Christmas bell, which is made up of, of scriptures, and it tells us what we have received. I'm going to read it to you, and... I hope it will help to illustrate just how big the gift is that we have received. I know who I am. I am God's child. I am Christ's friend. I am united with the Lord. I am bought with a price. I am a saint set apart for God. I am a personal witness of Christ. I am the salt and light of the earth. I am a member of the body of Christ. I am free forever from condemnation. I am a citizen of heaven. I am significant. I am free from any charge against me. 
I am a minister of reconciliation for God. I have access to God through the Holy Spirit. I am seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. I cannot be separated from the love of God. I am established, anointed, sealed by God. I am assured that all things work together for good. I have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. This amazes me. I may approach God with freedom and confidence. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I am a branch of the true vine, a channel of his life. I am God's temple. I am complete in Christ. I am hidden with Christ and God. I have been justified. I am God's co-worker. I am God's workmanship. I am confident that the good works God has begun in me will be perfected. I have been redeemed and forgiven. I have been adopted as God's child. I belong to God. Do you know who you are? Let's pray. Father, as we come towards Christmas, as we come towards the commemoration of Jesus' birth, we are filled with anticipation and excitement. But Lord, I pray that we would be filled with that anticipation and excitement for the right reason. I pray that that although as humans we can't really comprehend what Christ did when he came here, that we would just be able to see a tiny bit of that. And that with that understanding, Lord, we would be provoked to speak out for you, to be salt and light in the world. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.